you that you do speak to us through your word. Father, thank you that we can find out more about you, but not just as information. Father, thank you that we meet with you in your word. So, Father, speak to us this morning. Change as we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, my dad, as well as being an internal auditor for Comet and Superdrug, I'll leave you for a second think my surname is Haley. Uh, so working for Comet was an interesting experience for my dad. But uh, as well as that, he also ran a family business. Uh, my dad used to do the accounts for several local firms, a builder, a roofer, a car mechanic, a laundress, a pub in Howarth, a local fish and chip shop, and a long-distance lorry driver. Now, there was a reason for each of those, and if you ask me at the end, I'll tell you. But as my sister and I got older, my dad gradually introduced us to the family business. We'd have to add up columns of numbers and match numbers with receipts. My sister enjoyed it, and she became an accountant. I trained as a French teacher, and then went into ministry. Try and work out what I thought about that sort of activity. My dad, though, would pay us a nominal amount. But at points, it was sort of linked with our pocket money. It was all very confusing. And it was hard at points to know whether I could say no to helping. Was I disobeying my parents or just turning down a job from a boss? Was that man my father or my boss? And the Galatians Paul was writing to were having the same dilemma. Not with people, but with God. Paul came to them and preached the gospel to them. They accepted Jesus as their saviour and God as their father. But then some false teachers have arrived, trying to take them from relationship to rule keeping, trying to get them to adopt the Old Testament law in its entirety, moving their mindset from God as father to God as boss. And fundamentally it comes down to this, is God your father or your boss? Is it about relationship or is it about rules? Are you a son or a slave? And Paul here in this passage makes it quite stark to his readers. He wants them to see that the gospel that the false teachers have brought with them, with its legal demands, is actually no gospel at all. So he shows them a sort of before and after picture. This is what you were, and this is what you are now. And then he implores them to stick with Christ. So that's the structure that we're going to follow this morning. So first of all, what we were, slaves. Let me read to you again verses 1 to 3. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul says that formerly we were slaves. Sure, we might actually turn out to be heirs in God's big sovereign plan, but whether you're the child of a king or the child of a slave, you have no real rights in that world. And it's true today to a degree. So Prince George, heir to the throne, has no more a say over some things than my kids do. He can't decide what happens to his money. He can't sign contracts. can't sell Cornwall. Uh, it's just not something that he can do. He's a minor. Or to change the illustration uh, a bit more, what he's saying here, if you put Prince George in a class at school, he's as much under the teacher's authority as any other child in that class, 
in theory at least. He has to do his homework just like everybody else. Sure, one day he might be king, but right now he's a child. He's under the supervision of a teacher, and he must do what she says. And in that sense, he's no much better off than a slave in that way. And Paul says that before we were believers, that was us. We were slaves. Slaves to what, though? Well, in verse 3, it tells us that we were slaves to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that's a phrase that's really quite difficult to translate. In Greek, I've had to work, look at how to pronounce this, it's called stoicheion, okay? This principle idea. There's no direct equivalent in English, and people translate it in all sorts of different ways to get this idea across. So the ESV footnote says, uh, elemental spirits. Other ones have the elements of the world, the rudiments of the world, this world system, the useless rules of this world, the basic principles of the world, the basic moral principles of this world, the basic spiritual principles of this world. All of those are in different translations that you can read. So Kaon, though, is really the ABCs of something, the basics, the fundamental, the elements in that sense, in the same way that we use it in the phrase in elementary school. It's to do with putting things in order. The word comes from another word that means to march in a line. So it's sort of like the underlying basic principles of something. In Hebrews it's used that way. So Hebrews 5, uh, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles, same word, of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So this is basically the milk of the world. It's the stuff you imbibe at your mother's breast. Paul uses it in Colossians along similar lines. Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. There he sort of equates it with human tradition and philosophy. Later on in Colossians, it's equated with commands and regulations. So Colossians 2.20, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is it you were still alive in the world? Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precept and teaching. Do you see, again, we get this idea of human rules and laws. Something that, according to the Apostle Paul, the Colossians died to. So what are the basic underlying principles of the world? Well, they are the shared principles in the world that underlie almost all worldviews and religions. All peoples and people. So in Islam, they appear as the five pillars. In Buddhism, the eightfold path. In Sikhism, the five thieves. Even in religions like Wicca, there are 151 ardeens or laws. And in this law-based Judaism, they're actually seen in the Ten Commandments. It's those things that when people look across religions and they say that they're all basically the same, what they're seeing is these stokoyim, these basic principles, these rules. And even religion like, like Buddhism, where there's no God, still have them. In fact, even atheism has these principles, and they show themselves in different ways. 
Several prominent atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Bertrand Russell have produced their own Ten Commandments, showing they want to show really that it's possible to have these without having a God. And in a way, that's exactly the point, isn't it? It's possible to live by a list, even if you don't believe in a God, let alone the true God. The laws that they have in those different places may vary in their correctness. And as lists go, the Ten Commandments is the right one. But in the end, if we treat it that way, it's a list of laws. It's an expression of those basic principles. And that's why Paul intermingles it with the law in the following verse. He sort of jumps between the two. The point is that you were enslaved to these basic principles of the world. They were your master. And in that sense, if you think about it, it's actually a form of idolatry. We make a God out of a principle, or we reimagine a God who works differently to the God revealed to us in the Bible. And we make that our master. That's what it's getting at in verse 8 when it says that we were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. When we were under the elemental principles of the world, we were not worshipping the true God. No, we were worshipping something else entirely. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul goes as far as to say the pagans, seemingly unintentionally, were worshipping demons. They're being fooled into thinking that they were worshipping God, but they were worshipping something far less than God. Just going along with what everyone else seemed to be doing. So everywhere, in every human society, you find these basic principles. And for the Jews, they sort of latched onto the law to make them theirs. For the Gentiles, it was a variety of laws and superstitions. But where do we see them today? What about us? Well, there are still those specific religions and ideologies that we just mentioned. There can also be specific worldviews that act in a similar way with rules and regulations. Sometimes veganism can, or extreme environmentalism. Trusting in rules and behaviour to save the world. These basic principles with their rules and regulations pop up everywhere. For most of us though, I imagine it's it's less obvious. These are the things that's actually quite hard to see, because it's the air that we breathe, it's all around us. It's like the fish in the tank, it's really hard to see the water when you're swimming in it. But it shows itself in our society, I think, in what we think of as just basic niceness in the UK. You know, don't touch other people's stuff. Don't interfere in other people's lives. Don't say anything that might upset someone. If you're in a relationship, don't cheat or do anything non-consensual. Don't be intolerant to other people's beliefs. Those are sort of what we pick up in our society, aren't we? Those are the basic rules across the board. That seems to be how those basic principles are showing up. And it's not to say that all of them are bad, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Ten Commandments are not bad, are they? But if we make a god out of them, then they become an idol. And it can happen in the visible church too, where what is preached is not Christ crucified, but just be nice to one another, or keep the golden rule, or keep the Ten Commandments. (coughs) Morality there becomes the gospel. Jesus is not a saviour, but a sort of life coach, or a moral guide. Jesus, if you think about it, in that system, saves no one. He just shows us how to save ourselves. But morality as a gospel is no gospel. 
Slavery to rules, whether they be good rules, even the best rules, is not what God has planned for his people. God has planned something better. And so our second point, what we are now, sons. Let me read to you verses 4 to 8. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not God's. God sent his own son, that we too might become sons. When we put our faith in Christ, we are put by the Spirit, spiritually, into Christ. So that what is true of him becomes true of us too. He is a son, so we become sons. That's why it's more accurate really to say sons rather than just children. Because we're sons in Christ. He is the son. And in that world, the son was the heir. Christ is the son, the heir. So we now too become co-heirs with Christ. Because what is true of him becomes true of us. Now if this were not true, I would almost think it was blasphemous. That God would not just accept us as slaves, but welcome us as sons. It reminds me again of the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. You know that story where the son runs away and then comes back to his father? The son, while he's away, rehearses his speech that he's going to give to his father. This is what he says in Luke 14. I will arise uh, and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But when he gets to his father, his father's having none of it. His father gets him a robe and a ring. He kills the fattened calf and throws a feast. He doesn't welcome him back as a slave or a hired hand. He welcomes him back as a son. It's well beyond what the prodigal son expected. It's well beyond what the prodigal son deserved. But there it is. God adopts us as sons. Brings us into his family. Now, this talk of being adopted as sons confuses some people. Because the question comes, well, why does God need to adopt us? Aren't we already children of God? Doesn't Paul quote one of the Greek philosophers in Acts 17 and say, for we are indeed his offspring? Well, one commentator helpfully distinguishes between the fatherhood and the paternity of God. Paternity, if you like, is a mere fact. Fatherhood, though, is a relationship. There are plenty of wonderful examples of men who might not be biologically related to their children, but are true fathers to their children. The world may be God's children, his offspring, but we who are in Christ, as Paul, are sons and heirs. We've been adopted by God as his special sons, as heirs to his kingdom. And that should help us a bit with all this talk of rules and laws and legalism. We have a relationship with God as sons. That means that sort of relationship is not devoid of moral expectations or of discipline. But it is definitely not the relationship of an employer with his employee. 
I mean, for example, I have never threatened to fire my children. Even in, in the most difficult of times. I do not pay them wages for being my children. Or dock their wages if they misbehave. I don't give them less love if they're naughty. They are my children. And God, by his Spirit, has made us children, sons, heirs. By the Spirit, we now call our Abba, Father. Now, Abba is the Aramaic word for Swedish pop sensation. <laughs> no, it's not really. Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. For the one that, it's the one that Jesus used as he talked about his Father. And again, it implies a relationship. It's a relational word. We can call God the Father what Jesus called God the Father. The same thing. I think that's why it uses that term. Only my kids get to call me Father. That's their special, unique relationship that they have with me. But in Christ, Jesus shares that with us. We could cry out, Abba, Father. Now sometimes this passage gets quoted to say that we should call God Dad or Daddy. I don't think that's what it's saying. Abba was the normal Aramaic word for Father. And whenever it's given in the Bible, it's translated into Greek. And it's translated into Greek as Father. The Greek language, the, the one they had then, did have words for Dad and Daddy. They were Tata and Papa. But the word that's used in the New Testament, every time the Aramaic word is used, it's translated by Peter, Father. And of course the Lord's Prayer uses that word too. And Father, I think if we understand it as a, not a distance word, but a loving relationship word, but respectful loving relationship, I think that that's enough, isn't it? We get to call God the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, we get to call him Father. That's an immense privilege. Surely that's enough uh, for us. And the passage tells us that God has done this work. He has adopted us. It's his initiative. He did it by sending Jesus to redeem us. Jesus was born under the law, it says. Born under the elementary principles of the world, whatever form they take. And Jesus then redeemed us from them. He purchased our freedom by his perfect life under the law. And then his death taking the curse of the law. He brought us out of slavery that we might enjoy the freedom of the sons of God. Not freedom to sin and indulge our sinful nature. But freedom not to. Freedom to live for God as sons. Bringing us into a relationship where we are sons and daughters of the king. Heirs through God of the whole world in Christ. That's an immense position. And Paul's point then, why would you want to go back? After God has done all that, after God has brought you into this relationship, this wonderful relationship with him, why would you want to go back to what you were? And so our final point, sit with Christ, hold on to him. Let me read you verses 9 to 11. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have laboured over you in vain. 
Paul here talks about their conversion. Once they didn't know God. They were slaves to things less than God. But now, they know God. Or more, God has come to know them. Again, he takes the initiative. They have a relationship with God as Father. They are known by God, sons of God. So why are you trying to be slaves again, says Paul? Why are you going back to what you used to be? Now many of the people Paul is writing to are Gentiles, non-Jews. This has to be the case because the false teachers who come in, one of the things they're trying to do is get them to be circumcised. And if they were Jews, they would already be circumcised. So a big chunk of them must be Gentiles. The false teachers are trying to get them to submit to the Old Testament law. But Paul is saying that would be a return to slavery for them. They escaped their old slavery under whatever pagan system they were in, only to voluntarily put themselves into a new slavery with a new slave master. It's as though they're so used to that system of how things work that they're being drawn back into it under another form. As we noted last week, we can get so used to slavery that we feel more comfortable with it than without it. When the Israelites escaped Pharaoh in the Old Testament, do you remember what happened? A bunch of them wanted to go back. Here it would be like they'd escaped Pharaoh, only to try and offer themselves as slaves to the Canaanites. But we can't just transfer what we used to have in our old systems, if you like, and baptise it as Christian. The old systems that have their holy places, holy people, taboos, prohibitions, festivals, pilgrimages... He mentions it really in verse 10. It's as though he's sort of saying, all you've done is swap Yule for Yom Kippur. You've swapped the solstice for Sukkot. Now in Romans 14 and 15, Paul allows for people to have different opinions on days. So Romans 14, uh, 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honour of the Lord. But Paul here seems much stronger, doesn't he? He's actually seeming to be against them doing this. And what seems to be the concerning part here is that they seem to have reintroduced days and weeks and months. They ditched their pagan ones, and now they've added these ones in. So it's not so much as what's happening in Romans where it's a sort of scruple that they've got overhanging from their Jewish past. That one, Paul says, we should accommodate. We should understand that people have different scruples. But these are Gentiles adding in things, believing that in some way that earns them more righteousness or that they're required to do that to be right with God. And Paul sees this as them going backwards. They'd moved away from the elementary principles in paganism. They'd been clear of them. But now they're readopting their old principles, just in Jewish form. It would be like, in context that we're a bit more familiar with, it would be like a, a Muslim becoming a Christian and giving up fasting uh, for Ramadan. Only for a few months later to be told by a group of Christians that they're required to fast for Lent. Otherwise they're not a proper Christian. That's not freedom, is it? It's just transferred something. It's just a new form of slavery without, with a Christian or biblical veneer. 
And it's got to the point where Paul even begins to wonder whether he's been wasting his time in verse 11. They're in danger of making their real faith in Christ just another religion with its rites and rituals and trusting in those things rather than trusting in Christ. They're making it into another religion where we earn God's favour, where we're his employees rather than his cherished sons. And as we look at this, we need to ask the question of ourselves. Can we be in danger of falling into that trap? Falling back into the elementary principles of the world? Importing our old ways of thinking, the world ways of thinking, into our faith in Christ? And the dangerous thing with this, it doesn't always look unholy. In fact, often it appears very holy and wise. So Paul, if I read the full quote that we had earlier... Paul goes on to say that it can look this way. So Colossians 2.20 If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is it if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. And then this bit. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity of the part to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These things often have an appearance of wisdom. But really they're just a repackaged version of the things that we find in false religion across the world. Even if they're using things that we find in the Bible, in that sense they sort of appear biblical, they're not. Because their basis is not Christ. And sometimes it's so subtle it's hard to disagree with in some senses. Well, it's in the Bible. And as people who take the Bible seriously, we need to be careful for that, don't we? And keep an eye out for that. So many Christian churches down through the ages have fallen into this trap, often re-importing things that don't belong anymore. Priests, temples, food restrictions, festivals, segregation, pilgrimages, rules and regulations, just imported without any acknowledgement that Christ has come. And it makes Christianity sound very much like Islam or Hinduism or just another religion. But it's not. Because unlike any other religion, God is not our heavenly boss with a list of do's and don'ts and docking wages. He's our heavenly father with the free gift of grace. No other religion has this idea of adoption of us as individuals, as sons, as heirs. No other religion has this notion of grace. Salvation is a free gift. And that's because no other religion has Christ. And through Christ, we are adopted into God's family as sons. Through his sacrifice, we have salvation by grace alone. No merit on our part. So why do we need special festivals and dates? Why do we need priests and temples? Why do we need circumcision? Well, we have Christ. Why go back to being a slave when in Christ God has made us sons? Why go back to treating God as a boss to be appeased when God has become our loving Heavenly Father? We are immensely privileged in Christ. We can call God Father. That is our relationship. And to finish with, what I want us to do is to read the prayer that Jesus gave us to call God Father. 
We can do this together. I'll put it on the screen just in case you don't know it. Uh, the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to say this together to, to close. So let's uh, pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.